Good morning, afternoon, evening. Welcome to Showtime Podcast. I will be your host today, Cadet Second Class Mackenzie Adkins. I'm here today with uh, Cadet Second Class Caitlin Natz and Cadet Second Class Jalen Holt. We will be discussing a few constitutional law topics, some hot topics of today. Um, I'm seeing where that takes us. Today, our sponsor is going to be uh, the Commerce Clause, Article uh, 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, because even when it doesn't apply, um, it applies. Our first person up today is going to be Caitlin Natz. Caitlin, would you like to give us a quick rundown of what you're going to be speaking on today? Sure. Okay, so I'm going to be discussing the concept of the administrative state in our government And I'm going to expand on how it got to the point it's at today. And then I'm going to go on to argue why it holds too much power and why it's affecting the lives of U.S. citizens through its regulations due to the lack of oversight and accountability uh, from the government. All right. So our next person up is going to be Miss Jalen Holtz. Jalen, would you like to give us your summary of what you will be speaking to us about today? Yes, ma'am. So I will be talking about the Endangered Species Act um, enacted to protect endangered species and their habitats for the um, preservation of the environment and public service. And I will be advocating um, and showing uh, why that it needs the full protection of the Fifth Amendment taking its clause um, because um, it truly works when enacted to the full extent of the law. All right, so that was Caitlin Natz and Jalen Holt, and I am still your host, Mackenzie Adkins. So I'm going to intro a little bit of what I will be speaking on later in this podcast. My big question is, would a president actually have the power to pardon themselves? So what we've kind of seen in the past few months, this past year, was former President Trump saying on Twitter that he would be able to pardon himself, which obviously raised a multitude of questions. So I'm going to be analyzing what the Constitution says, what past cases say, and what some of the arguments um, that were raised by political advisors say. Um, Because in the end, uh, my argument is that no, a president would not be able to pardon themselves, and it would be unconstitutional. All right, so first up on today's podcast, we have Cadet Second Class, Caitlin Nats. So, Caitlin, take it away. Okay, so I, again, am talking about the administrative state. Um, So just to begin, the administrative state is the group of agencies within the government that translate law passed down from Congress into practical rules for the people. Um, And so these agencies have grown to hold a lot of power because Congress has started passing super broad rules and like very vague laws. Um, Do you have an example of like a broad rule or vague law? So it will be like something like an environmental rule. So there's like environmental agencies and Congress will just pass down like kind of the direction they want to go go in with the law and then the agency will just take whatever the vague direction was and make it really specific and kind of tailor it to whatever they want to do and then Mm -hmm. the people are binded to this and like companies are binded to these laws and the interesting part and the the part where the problem comes in is that like these agencies are not one of the three branches of government but they hold all this power they have the power to make laws and to regulate those laws 
and then they have the power in courts, which I'll get to, to um, like bring those laws up in cases and make them binding in court. Maybe okay. I'm, I'm being kind of repetitive. So you're saying that each branch of government is giving these entities or these agencies some form of power. Yeah, essentially. Um, and they're not in the Constitution because we have the three branches. And this, um, the administrative state is sometimes called the fourth branch of government because it acts like the branches of government. It has all this power that it's not supposed to have. And I, there's an interesting quote that said, by James Madison that said, um, if all three of these powers, which are making law, enforcing law, and adjudicating law, are held by the same entity, which would be the administrative state, then this is the very definition of tyranny, which I thought was a very interesting quote because that could be one way to interpret what's happening. So do you think then that like James Madison or like the Founding Fathers, did they foresee the administrative state or did this quote just happen to apply? Like, do you think they expected this to happen or were they gonna prepare for it or? Yeah, I mean, so after doing some research, you can kind of see that this happened in 17th century England and like the kings would, you have your laws that your that parliament would pass or whatever that the king kind of needed to follow. But then the king also had this absolute power and they could be like, oh, I can do whatever I want. Like I'm the king. So that's like one place where we've seen it in history. But I don't think that the founders could have really anticipated the place that we see the administrative state in today. But just due to human nature and the history that we see of um, people holding power, you can tell that like if the power gets into the hands of one group in the government, it can get dangerous really quickly, which I think is why they wrote the separation of powers so clearly into our constitution, was to avoid this from happening. Okay, okay so the next problem I'm going to start talking about is Chevron deference. So this goes back to a case in 1984 called Chevron USA Incorporated versus Natural Resources Defense Council Incorporated. Um, and it ended up being a landmark case, but it wasn't really supposed to be. So basically what happened was there was an issue presented concerning the Environmental Protection Agency, so the EPA, their actions under the Clean Air Act that was passed by Congress. So this is an example of Congress passed the Clean Air Act, which was pretty broad, and then the EPA went in and defined the word stationary sources of air pollution and because it wasn't defined by Congress. So this agency took it upon themselves to make their own definition of this word, and that was where... And Congress allowed this? Yeah, Congress just said, go ahead, like, take it, and... This basically, uh, the holding was that agencies can make these definitions if there's a vague word in an act passed by Congress. So it gives them a lot of power to like decide what they want these words to mean and how it's going to affect like people that are under this act. That's a lot of power. Yeah. And so now it's called Chevron deference. So whenever there's an unclear or vague term in court, um, when an agency is involved, the court has to defer to the agency to define it, which gives the agency so much power. And it's very un unconstitutional because it's favoring one party's ideas over the other. So like the popular party or whoever decided like what this definition was, it wasn't, the people didn't get to decide this. It was the agency. 
Um, so it's very biased, which also violates due process because it's not giving a fair trial. And it's an abandonment of the court. They completely abandon their duty to make their own decisions by relying on the agency. So this is kind of an issue. Um, and the Chevron deference hasn't been used as much in the past couple of years, but it's definitely still prevalent in a lot of different cases. And yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to give a quick uh, history of how the administrative state really came into existence, uh, given that it's not in the Constitution at all. It's not one of the three branches of government. So it began mostly back in 1887 when Woodrow Wilson wrote The Study of Administration. Wait, wait 1887? Yeah, 1887. When was he? Hold on. <laughs> this is my revelation. What was he born? Can someone look that up? When was he born? Wait. Uh, Why am I thinking Woodrow Wilson was like mid 1900s? <laughs> mid 1900s? Um, what? I'm. He was born in 1856. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> so he's quite old. History so, is failing me. Sorry yeah. So this was a while ago, and he wrote a paper just talking about the study of administration. It was just an essay talking about he was frustrated with the system of checks and balances in our government and said that. Modern life is just getting too complex for these founding principles and basically Fair basically enough. making the argument for the administrative state. And this kind of planted the seed in people's minds and they were like, oh, like this kind of makes sense. And it started building up the progressive movement and more people started following these kinds of ideas. Um, and this kind of like we moved on from this a bit and obviously we didn't like change our constitution or anything but people like definitely start thinking about this and then um the first government agency was actually created the same year that this um essay was published which Do you know which one it was yeah it was the interstate commerce commission Ooh. so yeah pretty well known and it was uh created as a separate entity which wasn't included in the constitution but operated within government which is literally what an agency is so it was the very first one which is interesting it just lined up perfectly with when his essay came out um and then more agencies started coming into existence after this but the main part where the administrative state that we see today like started forming was during president fdr's term so he came into office right after the great depression and the country was obviously a mess and there was a lot to fix especially economically um and he really he needed to pull the country out of the depression so to do so he felt like he needed to create more cabinet positions and he just started creating a ton of agencies and made like like thousands or hundreds of oh, so governmental he jobs went on an agency just yeah and did so. anyone bring up like Hey. A congress, like any kind of congressional challenge against yeah. it, like, like I mean, maybe this is unconstitutional, or did everyone just kind of like just let him let do what he needed to do, do, do to wanted. try and get them out of the depression? Because he's the president, he can do whatever he wants. Like, yeah. So what you just said, Mac, I think is what kind of the idea was there is that the country was in it was coming out of this great depression, and everyone felt pretty hopeless, and it was yeah, he seemed pressed. yeah. This president was uh, he was trying to help them, and so everyone wanted. He, they wanted his plans to work. You know, he had his New Deal agenda, and he used these agencies and all these new governmental jobs, and he wanted these to help him, is what we were thinking. But in one of his ad like addresses to the people, Roosevelt actually explained, like, he kind of reinterpreted the Constitution and said, 
Rulers were accorded power, and the people consented to that power on the consideration that they be accorded certain rights. So he kind of undermined the idea of popular sovereignty and like kind of emphasized that the administrative state was um, kind of needed. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Could you read that quote again? Yeah, it's kind of a wordy, wordy quote. So he said, rulers were accorded power, and the people consented to that power on consideration that they be, they be accorded certain rights. Okay, so President Roosevelt automatically assumed that the people of the United States would be okay with this because they... Because, yeah, the ruler has the power, and they, oh, they automatically just consent to it. So that was the reinterpretation of the Constitution, right. which was definitely a different idea, I think. Right. So that kind of, like, showed his mindset. Um, and so we saw all these new agencies being brought in, and he was basically saying, oh, these bureaucrats that are in charge of these agencies, they're experts in, like, the environment or, like, a, yeah. specific, like a specific economic area. And, like, their job is to focus on that one area and basically make laws and rules and regulations. And they were the, they were the experts, so that's um, – they were supposed to help us get out of this – Depression. So there is an argument, though, and I think this holds kind of a lot of weight to me, at least, is that these elected people, um, all the elected officials in the government, so not the agencies, but the elected Mm -hmm. ones, I mean, you have to get reelected every term or so. And so you want to make people happy. But it's really hard when you're coming out of depression. You're going to have to make some hard decisions. And these people kind of wanted to get rid of that controversy. They don't want they didn't want to be the ones receiving the backlash cuz they were going to be the ones getting yeah. reelected. So that's kind of why the agencies kind of came into being cuz they're not elected. They can stay right. there forever. So they can take the heat yeah. while the public figures can't. And they make these hard decisions and we right. kind of see that today too like Congress is like okay, hands off, like pass it down to them to make the actual hard decisions. We'll just give them this big idea. Oh. Um and that, okay. yeah, made it a lot easier. I, I actually did not know this, Caitlin. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting, and it, it's still happening today. We have lots of cases of that. And there's the non-delegation doctrine, which is in Article 1 of the Constitution, saying that Congress alone holds all legislative powers. And I think the important word here is all. They didn't say some legislative powers. They said all. So Congress should not be handing down their legislative powers to these agencies. Agencies should not be making laws and they should not be enacting laws whatsoever. Like this is not their power. So this is from my ignorance. Is there any place in the, so with article one, so it says, you know, Congress has all this power. So is there anywhere that it states that it can, you know, delegate or is it all with Congress? No. It's all Congress. I mean, the main assumption, like, it's not even an assumption. I think if Congress or the founders wanted Congress to be able to pass down this power, they wouldn't right. have put the word all. I feel like that right. was very intentional. Um, because all means literally every power. They don't want anything being passed down to the other branches because right. this could turn yeah. into something bad, which I think we're kind of starting to see today. So... Yeah, I think it's definitely become a pretty big problem, especially since we're going kind of directly against Article 1 of the Constitution. 
The very first one. Yeah, the the first word. <laughs> First yeah. Founders said, "Yeah, let's not do let's this. Let's not do that." But you know what? We're gonna do it anyway <laughs> because it just seems better. Right. Yeah. So definitely a a big issue there. Okay. So a lot of um, experts, I would say, have a counter argument that say that the administrative state isn't really exerting a force or a great amounts of power on the citizens. Like we're not. They're not putting people in jail. They're not affecting our daily lives, like, dramatically, which is why I think a lot of people don't even really know what the administrative state is because we're like, okay, like, Congress is doing something and, like, these agencies are making rules. So it's like, why why do we even care about this? Mm -hmm. But I think the – there's two things. So first I would just say that this is, like – it's fraudulent action by agencies – And so when the administrative state really began, it was kind of just an exception to the normal mode of rule. So the normal way we want our government running is like Congress makes these laws and then they're enacted. Like that's we go through these like specific pathways for a reason. So we keep these powers separated. And like these agencies were only supposed to be exceptions in specific cases when we needed them. But now they've just become everyday life and it's starting to, instead of just like only affecting large corporations with their rules, it's starting to weave its way into our daily lives, like of individual citizens. So that's my second point is technology has gotten so advanced that there's more agencies that focus on technology like the NSA. And they're starting to make their own rules that are really um, getting pretty intrusive, I would say, on us because Almost everyone in America has a cell phone or some kind of media. They have computers. And all of these devices and the actions that occur on them give the government another area to just come in and regulate. It's like, oh, we can make an agency for this now. Like, it right. gives them so much more room with technology. Mm-hmm. And technology is not really a private thing, especially when you have a social media account or your cell phone. Yeah, like, the cyber world is very, very, very yeah. expansive. Your whole life's on there. Like, yeah. And they're using this technology to be like, oh, we need, a, we need an agency to work on this problem with technology. But what they're really kind of doing is using this as an excuse to kind of collect surveillance on Americans. So I think that's a problem that is more well known is some people are kind of worried about the kind of surveillance being done on us through spyware and other tactics and just claiming that it's for national security when we don't actually know how much data they're collecting on us. And they have a large amount of power over our data. And our nation's developing very quickly with that. Yes? Do we have a, like, a general... This is just kind of to do with this, but also just something I thought of. Do we have, like, a general count of, like, how many of these administrative things there are? Like, oh, yeah, I have... Like a general number of how many there are. And, like, because that's going to obviously affect, too. Like, yeah, we're talking about all the specific, like, technology, all these things, they're, they're created to hit these specific points, but, like, how many are there? Because I feel like that number is going to affect, like, how intrusive... As far as, like, the agencies? Yeah, so agencies. there are 450 agencies Ooh. right now, about, there's probably more at this point, 
and they employed nearly 2.7 million people. And these are all wow. unelected people that are just working for these agencies. Oh, wow. But they're basically in the government, and they're making, yeah, right. they're making the rules that we follow every day. Millions of people, random people we don't know, we don't elect, that are making these decisions that, are, that affect us. Directly. Yeah, affect yeah. us so yeah. intrusively on a daily basis. So that's why it's really a big issue. And there's a quote that I liked in one of the articles I read by Charles Cooper. And he said, the domain of the administrative state is vast, ranging from the most trivial to the most significant matters of public and private life. So I think that really encompasses the main thing. Like they are not written into our constitution. They do not need to be holding this power. They do like, it's getting pretty dangerous that like our country's going in this direction. And another big part of it is that it's so well hidden. Like, Mm -hmm. not everyone knows about this. We don't know what's going on in the government. Like, the citizens, like, we're, the people are supposed to be making the decisions, but these agencies kind of have taken over, and they're making our decisions and our laws when we're supposed to be doing that through the elected officials. If our elected officials aren't even making our laws, then what's the point, you know? Like, why do we have this constitution if we're not going to follow it? Exactly. So I really like my solution I propose in my paper, I won't go too far into it, is just that we need to go back to Chevron deference first because these decisions that are being made in court are what is binding. Yeah. And so we don't want agencies to be deciding like the definitions of words and stuff. Like agencies should not be holding this much power. We should only use agencies to help us when we need them. We need to use yeah. the normal pathways that we set in the Constitution of making laws through the three branches of government. And we do not need to have these agencies holding our hand through all of it. Um, because, I mean, as we've discussed, it, it can get dangerous pretty quickly. And it is pretty scary that it's becoming such a big problem and that they have this hold in our lives that most Americans don't really realize is going on. So, yeah, yeah I... That's basically all I have, a quick little discussion on my paper. I mean, I definitely get very into detail in the writing, but I think it's a very interesting topic. Interesting indeed. I actually learned something. Yeah, I learned a lot. I'm glad I picked it, and yeah, I uh, thanks for talking about it with me. I'm excited to hear about your guys' topics, thanks for te- too. You know, thanks for teaching us, Keelan. No problem, Thank guys. You. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem. We have some water in the back if you... Okay, yeah, I'm, qu- I'm pretty thirsty, honestly, so. All right, so we just heard from the lovely Caitlin Nats. Next up, we have Miss Jalen Holt. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Hello, ladies. Um, well, as I mentioned in our, yeah, in our intro, I will be, you know, talking about the takings clause underneath the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution and tying that into the endangered um, species act so um, a little bit about the um, well actually about the fifth amendment so I'm just gonna read it Um, it's kind of lengthy but I feel like it's necessary so it says and I quote no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except 
in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia when in the actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, and this is my favorite part, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read, read that again because that's actually really important. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So, you know, <laughs> right? So, you know, here we are, a Revolutionary War, um, you know, um, getting our freedom from Great Britain. Um, and we have our, you know, founding fathers drafting the Constitution, right? And so we all know about the Constitutional Convention, the Anti Federalist, the Federalist. And so the, the Anti Federalists um, uh, still feared that the you know adopted version of the constitution would have the federal government government be too powerful and led by thomas jefferson of course you know the adoption of the bill of rights was unproposed and um they felt and they saw the need to have protection um especially of private property um, against the federal government so they drafted the fifth amendment and um early on and initially, it was only a restriction against the federal government, but it wasn't until a century after uh, the Civil War, a girl, a century, where states and local government um, were held to the same standard. So um, there's this clause, it's called the Takings Clause, um, and where it says, no, nor shall you know, any person, dot, 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 be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Mm -hmm. So that's basically saying federal government, state government, any government entity cannot go into you know, private property um, to take it for public use without justly you know, compen yeah. <laughs> compensating um, the owner. And we're going to get into you know, what everything means with definitions. But um, um, there's a court case, 1960, um, Armstrong versus the U.S. So the Supreme, the Supreme Court ruled um, that this clause um, was to be, and I quote, designed to bar the government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which in all fairness and justice should be borne by the public as a whole. And I really want to talk about, you know, this this term of public burdens and, you know, mm -hmm. public use, right? So public burdens is basically on the what's the word on the um what's the word for like like responsibility responsibility it's on the responsibility of the government so basically yeah, fair enough so basically you know parks um railroads you know mm -hmm. stuff like that um and this court case is basically saying that uh the government's responsibility cannot be put on you know individual citizens because yeah. of course Person, it's yeah. right because it's the government's you know job build a little railroad right house you <laughs> do something about it like. right and um and with this i'm making an argument you know that seeing that the government has an obligation to the people um and a situation of possible property seizure is necessary for the public good um i'm bringing in to say you know, is it safe to say that the Endangered Species Act of 1973, you know, should be included in this clause? Mm. So basically, this um, clause or, or this act 
Yeah, um, what is the... The Endangered Act. Species Act. <laughs> so it's basically... Um, it's like... It's one of America's most flexible, you know, environmental laws. So it provides um, a lot of resources. And it's basically saying any listed endangered species and or their habitats cannot be, you know, interfered. So the seizure of endangered animals or the, what's it called, the permanent alteration of their habitat, anything that's yeah. going to, you know, destroy per- their home, destroy their home and basically prevent them from getting off the endangered list is basically illegal. But mm-hmm. however, um, this act is, um, you know, currently, I, I, I mean, it, it is, you know, a government act, but it's all based on, you know, vol- voluntary agreements, you know, with land over land owners, not landovers to conserve, you know, and recover species onto their own land. Mm -hmm. And um, major support of this act stems from just the voices of citizens who, you know, are strong advocates for the elimination of endangered species and their habitats, you know, to members of Congress. So, I mean, technically it is a law, but its main support is from, you know, the, you know, the Save the Turtle Girls. So, like, you're saying they have a lot of support. Are they getting funded by anyone right now? Or, like, how much money are they getting from people? (laughs) Yes. So, I think this was in 2012, I think. But um, the vast majority of its spending actually comes from the federal level. Oh. Right. So, yeah, I know, right? So, I think in 2012, 2013, actually $85.3 million, you know, came from states. And um and right and an overarching three oh five million I do not want to be wrong so let me look yeah so around you know three hundred and five million came from the federal level so we have you know the the support and whatnot it's just under the takings clause you, you know it says that the government I mean if it's for the, for the if if it is for the public good they can take it but you know with just compensation. And I'm just trying to see, um, is how it a, you compensate, how do you compensate for an animal? Yeah. Right. Um, and is it okay if we can, you know, include the ESA or, you know, the Endangered Species Act um, into the takings clause? And so this paper is really, and, and my research is really just, just about just, you know, kind of merging the two together or, you know, just bringing it, you know, under. That's interesting. So can the takings Okay, so then my question is, with the takings clause and the ESA and how this kind of all intertwines, Mm -hmm. can the takings clause, like, protect in the ESA, or is it going to, like, hurt the ESA? Glad that you asked that question, because that's literally my framework. So, with the takings clause, you know, it's basically stating that um, the government is prohibited of, you know, any seizure, seizing of private property without just compensation. And my argument or my suggestion of you know, this government act is that if this private property um, is in line with the ESA, so if this private land is a natural habitat for endangered species or endangered plants, because you know the ESA involves them all, um, if there are you know, endangered species on this private property, then I would say that it is the duty um, of the government and the government is allowed to you know, seize this land, of course, with just compensation, and that's where the benefits, you know, 
of this comes in because a common you know question that I might get is okay so if the government's taking this land so how does that balance out the potential um, economic um, gains right for you know that private owner so for example mm -hmm. if I owned a piece of land and I had you know the endangered bullwinkle eye frog uh, yeah right yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in my backyard and the government came to my door and was like hey you know I'm t we're taking this land because it's endangered species and I make the argument that you know I have tours of my frogs and this is how I get my income and here they are taking my land you know I would be left basically without a job right mm -hmm. so how you know with this proposal kind of you know combat that which is a you know, great question, great situation. I haven't, you know, knocked out all the kinks out yet, but when I get into when I get elected into office, you know, I'll yeah. whatever. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. But um I am proposing that, you know, just compensation will be given, you know, in addition to um, you know, the benefits uh that the ESA would provide. Mm -hmm. And so um there are many benefits uh with the ESA. So one of them, um, you know, in preserving wildlife you know, it offers a more direct benefit by supporting local tourism and improving resident residential land values, you know, nearby, yeah. right, nature preserves. And actually the National Fish and Wildlife, Wild, Wildlife <laughs> Foundation um, study found that land under the pretense of the Army Corps of Engineers generated at least $34 billion in sales and supported hundreds of thousands of jobs, right? Oh. So even if my land got taken, I would still be benefiting from it. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Be because, yeah. because the government would see, you know, hey, this is government land. However, we want to include you in the process of preserving this natural habitat and this mm -hmm. endangered species. And um, another benefit, international relations to aid other countries with their efforts. I mean, I, I know it's not a, you know, a big, big, economic you know wahoo and a big you know military wahoo but countries actually you know are engaged in this sort of stuff because i know there is an example of australia with um with there's some weird right some wild of, animals right of the united states um denying to uh purchase any products dealing with the red kangaroo and um australia australia Australia, you know, got on board and we actually formed multiple international relations because of that. It was actually quite All right, so I just had a question. Yes, um, you were talking about like property that the government yeah. can seize under this. So does that mean only physical property or like mm. can you just like expand on that yeah. a little bit more yeah. what that really means? Good. Good question. Um so with the takings clause, so we have a taking and a taking, you know, it may come in one or two forms. So the first one is an actual, you know, physical taking of the example I had before, you, um, you know, where the government would actually, you know, seize the physical property yeah. of the, you know, pri private owner. Um, and the second one uh, would be the actual taking, you know, or regulatory or constructive, you know, taking, which, which sets restrictions on the owner's rights in order for the government to still be able to seize, you know, the private property. So um, the government, you know, may not actually, you know, physically take the property, but they can, you know, seize all um, rights for 
you know, okay. get right. That's and so, yeah. And so it's not um, limited, you know, to tangible, you know, takings. There's easements, um, the contract rights, and trade secrets. Um, yeah, and it's actually the, the Supreme Court, um, over a series of re regulatory takings cases, um, ultimately established a four-part um, kind of prompt test in order to determine... Oh, we love tests. Oh, we love tests, right? Whether a regulation should be considered a taking underneath the takings clause. So the first part of the test is established under the court case of Loretto um, versus Teleprompter Manhattan CATV Corporation, where, and I quote, a government regulation is a taking when the government authorizes a permanent physical occupation of real slash, you know, personal property. So, okay. yeah, so this is the basic, you know, standard meaning, meaning, you know, of taking a actual property. So the second um, part, um, a regulation um, is established on, underneath the court case of Lucas versus South Carolina Coast Council where a regulation um, is considered a taking um, when the regulation causes the loss of all economically beneficial productive uses of the land unless uh -huh. the regulation is justified by background principles of property, you know, blah, blah, blah. So It's like an economic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of what I was saying before, how the government can interfere, you know, with my actual benefits or my rights where I'm you know, not making any type of um, economic benefit off the land. Right. And so third, um, this was underneath the court case of Nolan versus California Coastal Commission. Um, a regulation is considered um, a taking if the government demands an exactation. Exaction? Exaction. Is that the word? Exaction? <laughs> I'm not good with words, so right. I'm asking you. <laughs> that lacks a nexus with a legitimate state interest or lacks proportionality to projects' impacts. So basically, an exaction is a requirement you know, that um, a developer, you know, provides specified land improvements, payments, or other benefits to the public to help offset projects' impacts, right? So, um, the, those prongs were, you know, um, established by the Supreme Court. Um, so whenever these cases would come, you know, to court, they would have, you know, like specific categories. Yeah, that's helpful, yeah. Yeah, and so, to wrap it all up, I know I've been, you know, just talking about property and rights and takings. So, so basically, you know, underneath the takings clause, which I'm just going to just reiterate what it says of uh, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Mm -hmm. And under the Endangered Species Act or, or of 1973 or the ESA, I'm saying that this should be included um, with the public use and that, that the government not only has an obligation and a duty, but they have you know, the, the permission to take said private property you know, if it has an endangered species or an endangered habitat. Mm -hmm. um, of course, providing just compensation. Awesome. Yes, but so thank you guys for having me. I enjoyed myself. Yeah, I liked your topic. Oh, thank you. And Caitlin, I love your new hair, love oh. it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I like the blue. Yeah, I like the look. All right, so we've now heard uh, from both Caitlin Nats and Jalen Holt. So I am Mackenzie Adkins. I'm going to be talking about 
whether or not a president actually has the power to pardon themselves. And just to kind of throw the thesis out there of my entire paper, um, kind of by analyzing the Constitution and past cases and things that we've seen in these uh, past few years with just popular uh, social media, I'm arguing that it is unconstitutional based on all of these um, past cases and what the Constitution tells us. Uh, president cannot, in fact, pardon themselves. Um, never in history has a president ever pardoned themselves, and no one has really brought up the question of whether or not they can until now. Wait, no president has pardoned themselves? No. Wait, didn't... No. Nixon didn't, did he? I'm going to get into that. Whoa. So okay. with that whole water, yeah, the whole, all that scandal and everything yeah, there, it was brought up that he, like he could have yeah, tried, but there were during that time. Um, and I listed it in my paper. There were a lot of people that came out and were like, there's no way, like if he tries, there's no way he can go about it. Oh, and so it was, so, just a conversation. It was a conversation. Okay. It was brought up that he could have, he could have tried, right. um, but it never went forward. He decided to, I mean, resign and kind of get out and yeah. before everything blew up even more, uh, just to kind of take that pressure off because had that blown up, there would have been a ton of legal issues to kind of jump over and legal hurdles, yeah, legal hurdles, legal burdens. Um, so, I mean, the big reason that I kind of went into this topic was obviously um, former President Trump's tweet and I will read it word for word I brought it up um and this was tweeted I believe back in about um June-ish of 2018 uh he said word for word on his Twitter as has been stated by numerous legal scholars I have the absolute right to in all caps pardon myself but why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong and then he goes on, in the meantime, the never-ending witch hunt led by 13 very angry and conflicted Democrats continues angry. into the midterms. So, right, this kind of came up in the middle to so 2018 midterms. He's trying to prep for his re-election, everything. Um, and that tweet within itself just blew up, obviously, right? Having mm-hmm. Saying the words, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. Right. No one had ever, I mean other than Nixon, ever kind of brought up this question until now. And he came out and declared, like, you know what? As president, I could do it. Like, I can do it. Yeah. And there's a ton of backlash um, saying there's no way. Like, like this is so un- unconstitutional. Like, there's no way he could go about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest reasons that was brought up on why there would be no way that he could go about it is Article 2 of the Constitution. So... In Article 2, kind of states, like, the enumerated powers that the president is given, right? So everything that he can do. Um, And in Section 2, it says, President shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardon for offenses against the United States. So on its face, like, seems pretty straightforward. Like, he's got got the power to grant pardons. Oh, yeah. Um, But this power is, like, it's seemingly unlimited, right, Mm -hmm. in comparison to other powers given to other branches. Um... There was really no specific definition as to what qualified for an offense against the United States. Like, what exactly is he allowed to pardon? What can he not pardon? Um, And so, 
a lot of people brought in also our favorite, the Commerce Commerce. Clause, um, (laughs) saying, like, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce, da-da-da-da-da. And they talk about it very specifically. Like, it says in there, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among several states with the Indian tribes. Um, And it was very specific. And yet we see, like, the Commerce Clause, obviously, like, throughout the class, like, it can be applied to nearly anything, anything. even with oh, that yeah. very specific, like with foreign nations, with several states, with Indian tribes, like it says very specific words mm-hmm. within the Constitution. Yet when you look at that Section 2, it has the power to grant pardons for offenses against the United States. That's even yeah. more open and open to like interpretation. Right. So do you actually think that, that the Commerce Clause could... You know, yeah, I was going to say, help support a self-pardon by the president? Would that actually work? Yeah. If, I feel like if the, um, if the pardon is going towards pardoning an offense, that includes money. That includes, like, commerce. Yeah, that's facts. If there is a possible way that I'm sure the Commerce Clause could be brought in in support of, like, a self-pardon. Like, it relates, yeah. you know, it relates to everything. So if it related to the pardon that someone was trying to attempt... I'm sure, like, yeah, it could definitely support it, especially with it being so specific and supporting something so broad as, like, yeah. pardoning an offense. Like, That's so interesting. It could definitely be brought in. Um, and then you go on in Article 2. So that was just Section that was Section 2. Section 3 says um, president has to ensure that the laws are faithfully executed. They're kind of like that big hammer, making sure everything is being followed. Do you, um, do you think that's too broad? Just faithful execution. Faith, yeah. So that yes. So it's a it's a ton of power, right? Yeah. So it it would not be questioned for a president to pardon another person of a federal crime if the president is faithfully executing the law of the land. Like yeah. they're doing what needs to be done. Like something happened, he's pardoning it, and it's he's doing it faithfully because that's his job. But if a president pardoned themselves. There's no way that they could be faithfully executing the laws because they'd be putting themselves above the law of the land. They'd be putting themselves above, like, federal criminal law if they decided to just pardon themselves. So they're not faithfully executing it. Sure, they're executing a law, but, like, they're doing it in a way that there would be a ton and a ton of backlash, right? Yeah, because this is essentially giving the president, you know, too much power. Yeah. So, like... Just going off that, like, if the president can't pardon himself, like, can anyone pardon him, do you think? There, I mean, I feel like you come in as another president, maybe, like, if we had had, like, another Republican president um, Mm -hmm. brought in. Yeah. And they're, like, close-knit, you know, I mean, it's the government, man. Like, they, who knows what goes on in the government? Last Tuesday, yeah. If they come in (laughs) and they can set a pardon for someone else... Yeah. Uh, former President Trump only had one term. They pardon him. They get rid of all the impeachment trials that went oh, on. Yeah. They say, oh, yeah, he's okay. He's okay. He can come right back and, like, run, again. Re- run yeah. again, be reelected. Like, that, I mean, that could happen. I'm, I'm okay. sure it could happen. But it would not happen without a ton of backlash and a ton of courts trying to find something, I'm sure, find something to overstep, like, those kind of loopholes because that's like that's the thing is the president's in such a unique position as yeah. president and as law enforcer it allows them to find those like powerful loopholes because they've been given yeah. like way more power than i think any of us truly can comprehend yeah. um 
because, I mean, I've got a quote in here. Um, it's agreed that a president faithful to the Constitution's original meaning and faithful to the public rather than his own self-interest may not legally issue self-dealing pardons, nor may he fire executive officials largely to protect himself. Mm-hmm. So there's also that thing. Like, he could uh, fire people within the government. Oh, yeah. Before he did the self-pardon that he feel like that he would feel like would try and uh block it. Yeah. So there was that possibility. Like yeah. he could just start firing people that he thought like would overturn his self pardon and then go ahead and move forward. Like Did did President Trump do that? I don't think so. You don't think so? Just, I think just that's fire like, random people. Yeah, that could definitely happen though. Like yeah. if this ever happened again, like mm-hmm. I mean I mean what else would you do? Like that would definitely help him out. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, like, it's just a complete violation of the public's trust, right? Like, oh, yeah. no one would ever, it'd be way more detrimental to oneself than it would be beneficial, which is why a lot of, after he came out with that tweet, a lot of his advisors, yeah. they were like, hey, man, like, you, you this is, act, like, you, I mean, maybe you could, but let's not do it because it's actually <laughs> going to hurt you a lot more in the end than it's going to help you. Yeah, and trust right. is huge with the public, I think. We yeah. see that yeah. on social media, oh, and yeah. in the news. Like, yeah, so, people so, are not afraid to say anything. So, Mac, in your opinion, mm-hmm. like, what do you think the public would do if, you know, their leader just, I mean, just, just flat out broke the trust? I mean... Riot. 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 Like, yeah. Like, I mean, to do something like that. And I, I think... We saw it in a more subtle way in this past election, I would say, in the mm-hmm. way that we didn't re-elect Trump. Like, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We switched. And you saw like states like Georgia just completely turn around. Oh, yeah. I think that was based on a lot of distrust in the fact that like mm. that there was two impeachment trials. People are getting nervous. They're saying, oh, maybe we should try and get someone else like to yeah. run for our party. Like let's maybe like let's switch it up like this is kind of like i feel like there was a lot of distrust and just like those subtle things had he gone forward with with this like i feel like a lot of people would have switched maybe like there'd be rioting like people would be at the court's doors trying to be like there's got to be something (laughs) you guys can do as a court to like block this and that's something i also talked about right is like um well there's also the impeachment issues that we could talk about so there's two impeachment trials, right? Mm-hmm. And it says um, that a president is restricted. Well, it doesn't say this, but president um, has a constitutional power to grant pardons, is, is, but it's limited by impeachment, right? Yeah. So for a long time, it was seen as like, this was kind of in place to protect a president from like undoing penalties from like the Senate's convictions because impeachment's got to go through like Senate so he can't like step in and block the impeachment but no one ever brought up the possibility of a pardon overturning an impeachment yeah but now it can be kind of understood that like this clause that deals with impeachment like it could prevent the president from pardoning themselves when yeah. the issue that they're trying to pardon deals with their own impeachment that kind yeah. of like blocks it all um and really, like, kind of ruins the whole argument, and Congress and all that can kind of come in and just be like, "Hey, like, this is definitely yeah." So you would not say allowed. like Congress can like yeah, they can be a check on the self pardon. Like, yeah, yeah. This sure. is when like yeah, this is when that whole checks and balances can really come into play yeah. and really help out. Like, um, 
and really block this whole thing from going forward. All right, so going off of all that and kind of going back to something that we discussed in the beginning um, is former President Richard Nixon. Because the thing with this is that we have no real historical cases yeah. of, like, we have no legal background to go off of. True. And that makes it 10 million times more difficult, right? You're just going to throw this new problem at the court. Now they got to figure out, yeah, like, it's got, they got to start from, like, just step zero. zero yeah. yeah, and just, they have no idea what they're doing. They have no, no legal background to go off of, right? So, 1974, then President Richard Nixon was investigated for obstruction of justice, abuse of power, and contempt of Congress. And contempt of Congress? Contempt of Congress. So, in response to this, there was a memo written by a lawyer in the Office of Legal Counsel, and the final conclusion was that it would be unconstitutional for President Nixon to pardon himself. Because oh. under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, That's, the yeah. president cannot pardon himself. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. And Nixon never attempted during his whole scandal and resigned later that year before things got more out of hand. But this was honestly the closest thing anyone had ever gotten to a self-pardon until recently as a nation when President Trump tweeted that and declared that he could. So um, before Nixon even tried to do it, they just let They just, in. yeah, they said yeah, resign, no. get out before things start to blow up. Like, there's no oh. point in just sitting here. Okay. And that's what a lot of the political advisors kind of came out and said. They were like, there's, you, you got to stop. Like, so there was the, obviously, the Capitol riots during January of this year. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was put under investigation for inciting violence and then went, underwent a second impeachment trial. Um, and he was investigated for an incendiary, incendiary speech he gave to thousands of supporters on January 6th, shortly before yeah. a mob descended on the U.S. Capitol and Exciting disrupted violence. congressional yeah. cert- certification of Biden's victory, sending lawmakers into hiding and leaving five people dead. Wait, so, really? Yeah. People died? Yeah. People died. Because people got shot. They climbed in the walls and people got shot. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. So this was like as his term was ending, like January 6th, like his term was ending and he was going to become a private citizen. So that brought up a whole other thing, right? So the public mm-hmm. was like, oh, well, he's going to be safe from impeachment. All the evidence paired with it. Like he can't, like he's a private citizen again. So mm-hmm. how does this all going to apply? Right. Well, it was discovered that... Um, stated by actually like Senate, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, President Trump was still liable for everything that he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen until unless the statute of limitations has run. So there's this thing brought up like, I mean, he could still try like, like we talked about earlier, like he still would be tried for this like second impeachment. Really? And it yeah, could really ruin it could ruin his uh, second running. So, so that's why he wanted to go forward with the pardon so quickly is because he was like... He was planning on running again. He was planning on running yeah. again, and this impeachment was going to go past his term. Like, he could mm-hmm. still he could still go through it even as a private citizen because everything that was done was while he was in yeah. office. Oh, okay, so with the, you know, the Senate majority leader, was it? The Mitch? Senate minority leader. Mitch really? McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Mine. Okay, so when he was saying that he would still be held accountable, I mean, how? Because isn't he just frolicking in Florida right now? I mean... Yeah, but the self, like, it still what do you happened mean? when he was president. Yeah, like, it, oh. so it happened when he was president, so right. he could still, 
like be held accountable. Be held accountable. Chose to no even no even after because everything happened while he was in office. So even as a private private citizen, they could have. But they but they moved but they moved through the impeachment and they threw it out. So there was nothing else they could do. So that was was, if he was you know convicted and actually you know found guilty. Yeah, he would be paying some. Pretty serious consequences. And that's when, like, pardoning from another person could have come in. And then right. that would have been a whole other thing because it wouldn't have been a self-pardon. But someone else pardoning him and allowing him to come back into office would have been yeah. a whole other thing. Um, Very interesting. But, yeah, so his, his advisors came in. They said, like, if you do this, you're inviting, they said, quote for quote, inviting the sword of the Department of Justice. Um, things are just going to come down. And it's also just probably going to bring up a lot of other things, right? So, I mean, you never know, like, in the government, all the other crap that people do. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes. So a lot of people are saying, like, do not bring this self-pardon upon yourself because if it happens, people are going to investigate what you did. What you did on January 6th, they're going to start investigating everything about your life. Everything's going to blow up. Just keep it it even. People aren't going to investigate further because they don't really care. Like, you're done. Mm -hmm. Try again four years. So that's kind of the outline of my paper, kind of where I went with it. Talks about the articles. It It really, it really, yeah, it really, it's hard because it's something that's never been brought up before. There's no legal background, except for maybe something in the Constitution. Um, But it also argues like Constitution is a little too broad. Like new things are brought up all the time. You think you think we've seen it all, and we really haven't. And that's something we like we've been seeing the past few years. Really have not seen it all. So it brings up a lot of questions on what Congress can do, what the courts can do, what the Senate can do. So thank you for listening to my topic, you guys. And that is about all we have for today's episode one. So thank you for listening. Um, We look forward to hearing back from all of you listeners on what you liked, questions, comments, uh, snide (laughs) remarks. Thank you.